0: Coming to you from WUGA in Athens, Georgia, this is AquaThread, a podcast that illustrates the connections in our world from land to water to people and everything in between. We work to bring you new voices and often underrepresented perspectives on many intertwined topics. I'm your host, Jenna Jambeck, an environmental engineering professor at the University of Georgia. In each episode, I'm joined by a rotating set of co-hosts, mostly in their early career. This episode, I have Madison Warner, an environmental anthropologist and project manager for the Circularity Informatics Lab here with me at the University of Georgia. How are you doing today, Madison?
1: I'm good. I'm doing well. The The weather's warming up here, so I've been in a fantastic mood recently. I love being able to just work outside during the day and read a book outside in the evening. So these past few weeks have been really pleasant for me.
0: (laughs) Nice. I agree. The weather has been amazing here uh, in Georgia. And I think maybe pollen season or pollen seasons, I feel like there's multiple ones, has maybe ended. It's also, for me, that time of the year, the animals get kind of active out at our house. And I have a funny story. Just this morning, there was a snapping turtle from our pond on our lawn. And our smallest And youngest dog was, of course, like messing with it. And we were like, he's going to get his head bit off. Anyway, we got him inside. And so he was safe and everything. So but I'm not sort of able to work outside as much uh, with all kinds of ruckus around my house. But I would if I could. And I love when we're on Zoom calls, um, seeing that, you know, you're able to be outside. So what else has kind of been on your mind
1: well i've been honestly thinking a lot about the pfas regulations and news that's just been coming out i'll read all of these articles about pfas in the morning and then i put on my gore-tex hiking shoes and waterproof rain jacket and then go walk my dog and then i'll come back home and make breakfast in one of my non-stick pans so i've just kind of been feeling hyper aware about where i'm coming into contact with pfas in my life and i've been trying to figure out how i can continue to live my life in the meantime without feeling like I'm slowly descending into madness. Um, But I will say as a caveat to this, black and brown communities, poor communities, they've been drawing the link between harmful chemicals and human health for a while now. And it's unfortunately taken these PFAS regulations, as well as the knowledge that PFAS is in expensive outdoor gear, high-end cookware, you know, compostable fiber containers to get people to be concerned about this on a national scale myself you know, included. So there's obviously a privilege in that. And a lot of PFAS concern is also centered around the contamination of drinking water and broader issues of contaminated drinking water can directly be linked to environmental justice with, you know, Flint, Michigan being an obvious recent example because of the way that inequality functions, Black communities, Indigenous communities, poor communities, etc., are all disproportionately impacted by these issues. So, yeah, <laughs> I've just been thinking about how Part of being human now is living among these forever chemicals. And then there are these extra layers related to structural inequalities and systemic racism that makes that experience more burdensome for some people.
0: Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. I just saw the other morning an article talking about uh, PFAS in contact lenses. And I was like, what? I've been wearing contact lenses since I was 10 years old, actually, since fourth grade. And so then I was like, you know, thinking about how they're soft and smooth. And so I guess I was sort of not surprised, I guess, once I thought about it. But I'm really glad that we've added this component to our NSF project that we work together on where we can all learn more along with the cities that we're working with about PFAS. And for those that don't know, um, I think we should define PFAS, the US EPA It says that PFAS, per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, are a group of about 14,000 chemicals that are persistent in the environment and the human body, meaning they don't break down, they can accumulate over time. So that's how they kind of become to known as forever chemicals, which they've been identified by as the NIH, uh, the National Institutes for Health. They're linked to cancer, fetal complications, liver disease, kidney disease, thyroid disease, fertility problems, autoimmune disorders, and other health issues. So, But the good news is that there are bans and regulations coming, um, and you're absolutely right. There has been disproportionate exposure and awareness on the issue well before these new regulations have come to be. I do think they're doing a pretty good job of getting the word out now, and and awareness is rising. Uh, and that really leads to, I think, one of our topics today, which um, our guest uh, is going to talk about, how do we get the word out about situations and issues like these? Our guest today is Dune Ives, who is Chief Executive Officer at Movements That Matter, which we will hear more about during the episode. I met Dune when she was working with Lonely Whale and have always admired her work and creativity. Welcome to the show, Dune.
2: Thank you for having me. It is such an honor, Jenna and Madison, to be here with you today. I'm so excited for the conversation. Great.
0: Uh, Thanks for joining us. And I'd love for you to tell us about your background and how you got to working in the spaces of the environment. Um, You've been both in climate and plastics. And I love that your schooling involves both engineering and psychology. So please tell us more.
2: Oh, my goodness. Engineering. Um, So (laughs) I, I will have to say, I am just starting my engineering degree, Jenna. Maybe you inspired me on that journey. I love it. Um, but come this fall, I will be a brand new master's of engineering student at the University of Oklahoma, studying hydrology and water security. So we can come back to that. And it's perfect for the PFAS conversation, right? There's so much that we don't yet know yeah. about our water situation that we're learning more and more about. So um, yeah. I'm inspired at the age of 52 to go back to school. love it. As, but yeah, psychology. So I, um, how did I get into this space? I think I probably just started when I was really young. I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska. My mom went to Alaska shortly after I was born to try to make a living for her and her only daughter. And she went to work on the Alaska Pipeline back in the early 70s. And I grew up in a one-bedroom cabin without water or electricity in one of the harshest climates in the world, 50, 60, 70 below during the winter. So I always had a great appreciation that nature will kill you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sometimes it feels like it's trying to kill you, but it will. And so you grew up with a really healthy respect for it. Um, And, you know, I I started after getting my PhD in psychology, started working in corporate America. I worked for Arthur Anderson in the early days, and I just couldn't uh, stand it, to be honest. I didn't. I remember this one project i was assigned to which was to do a survey of expats from the automotive industry and their satisfaction with their benefits and i was like i could care less (laughs) i don't know i hope they're happy but i feel like there are more important issues for me to be working on Mm. and so i left and i went to work at the northwest energy efficiency alliance in portland oregon Back in the days, we were looking at brownouts and blackouts. So that's really where my environmental career started was in the electric and gas utility sector.
0: Yeah. Wow. And I love, thank you for bringing up, uh, you know, your roots and and your childhood. My winters were not quite as cold, but I was in a more like a cabin because we didn't have central heat in Minnesota. So you and I, I remember now we've related to some of that that cold weather in places where you do get a very healthy appreciation for what nature can do. Not only, you know, it's just, it's power as well as its beauty.
2: That's right. I mean, there was nothing more spectacular. And I think some of my friends in Alaska might think I'm crazy to say this, but nothing more spectacular than 35 below on the winter solstice in those two hours of daylight that we had in Fairbanks, to see the sun rise and set so quickly and you see the pink hue on the snow on the branches, like it's, I'm sure you experienced that in Minnesota, but it's like one of the most magical things, Mm -hmm. right? And it's just for a moment, right? So you savor every second of it and then it goes away and then you're in the darkness again. Yep.
0: (laughs) Really, it breeds that appreciation for sure.
1: It does, it does. So Dune, most of the places that you've worked seem to be foundations and nonprofits. Has that been a deliberate choice? Do you feel like these types of organizations are able to drive the change that you envision?
2: Matt, it's a really good question. Um, I, I actually would, if somebody asked me like, where did you work? What, what is your career path been? I think I may have always thought that I worked more in a corporate environment, honestly. Um, and I think maybe that's because of the mindset that I bring to my work. I'm a, I'm a naturally curious person. And so I've gone from for-profit Anderson back in the day when it existed before Enron to nonprofit, back to for-profit. Um, then I spent some time um, with my husband and our daughter starting a small-scale organic farm up in the North Cascades of Washington State. And then I went to work consulting with large corporations, and then I went to work at Paul Allen's shop at Vulcan, which was a which was a corporation. Lonely Well is actually my only, besides Northwest Energy Efficiency Alliance, my only nonprofit experience. Um, I I think that for change to happen at scale, we need all aspects, all types of organizations up and down our supply chains to be working together. There is a really important role for nonprofits to play. And I think corporations that are really you know, future leaning understand that role really well. Sometimes nonprofits get things started, which I think we did it lonely well, really well. Sometimes they put pressure on the system that the system is asking for, the system really needs. And sometimes they would just really help celebrate and bring together communities in order to really support the changes that are being put in place. Equally as important though, is the role of corporations. Without companies at the table, without companies driving change, particularly on supply, the PFAS conversation, right? Where are we going to ban? How are we going to tackle PFAS? Well, you've got to ban PFAS. We can't solve it downstream at the water utility. You've got to solve it upstream. Mm -hmm. Um, And without companies coming to table, either from a policy standpoint that nonprofits have helped to put in place um, or because they see they can make more profit, they have a longer term view like a Patagonia, for example, then we're just not going to make that change happen. So um, I, I think Madison, it's a really good question. I think it takes all um, aspects of society and every type of company and nonprofit to come together to really affect change.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think it's also important to have people like you in this space that are willing to work across these sectors and do that work because one issue that we often run into in the work that we do is that there are these divides between industry, government, nonprofits, and it's hard to get them to all collaborate and work together and see the needle move forward. So yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why Jenna and I probably connected so early on in my work at Lonely Whale is is the research Jenna that you did back in the day that really influenced me when I was at Vulcan too is you know looking at the levers that you have in the marketplace and and nobody has the answer right I think that's an important thing to consider as well as if we if any one of us had the answer we wouldn't be in the situation we are today. Right. So we have to work across those divides, Madison, like you said.
0: Yeah. And corporations being uh, evolving and to be different. I mean, I I forget sort of that Vulcan is a for-profit corporation because of all the good that they do and the work that, you know, we did with Encourage Capital, you know, connected to them it was all to make systems change to prevent plastic pollution. So. Okay, so I want to kind of go back to one of my earliest memories of seeing you. It was at the South Carolina Aquarium Breaking Down Plastic Summit in 2017. And I remember seeing you talk about the campaigns that you were working on at Lily Well to reduce plastic use and pollution. And I was just thinking how awesome it was that someone with your skills was using the power of marketing. I don't know if that's the right term, but it seemed like the power of marketing for good. And I recall you were also presenting lots of data, which, of course, you know, impressed me as a researcher. So I'm curious kind of what motivated you to take, I think, not just this marketing approach, but also quite an analytical approach to those campaigns.
2: I am very data driven by design. I, I think that comes from my love affair of, of research and evaluation from my degree in psychology. So I wasn't. I wasn't a psychologist, the one who's going to help you figure out how to work out of the situation you're in. I'm the psychologist who is going to tell you what situation you're in and track your behavior (laughs) along the way. (laughs) Um, So I've always been very data driven. Um, And when I met, uh, when I met Adrian Grenier, the co-founder of Lonely Well, and his producing partner, Lucy Sumner, you know, it was really Eye-opening for me that here are these two incredibly gifted storytellers and content creators. And what they want to do is they want to tackle the ocean. And I hadn't seen ocean issues. I hadn't seen anyone else do that yet. And so I had just come out of working for Paul Allen and he, he asked us on the executive team, this really important question of how do you get people to care for the ocean? Because he knew that as a billionaire, you know he owns a sherman tank and a russian mig and multiple sports teams and huge art collections and more money than you can spend fast enough um if people don't really care for something they're not going to protect it and so how do you get them to care and so that was really the genesis of that relationship with adrian and lucy is could we leverage high production value content the way that a nike does to get you to buy a pair of shoes and leverage that to get you to buy a healthy ocean the concept of a healthy ocean. So you probably I'm pretty sure I talked really fast during that presentation. (laughs) That's okay. I got Um, yeah. Well one thing that one thing that we were doing too at Lonely Well is we were trying to track the conversation. I think during that I shared a slide, a Google research. Yep. Slide anyone has access to the Google data, right? So looking at trends over time to see whether or not our campaigns were resulting in shifting the floor of the conversation so that we had more people talking about single-use plastics um, and and to really track like, what impacted the Nat article, the Nat Geo um, issue have yeah. on the plastic conversation. What about break free from plastic? What about our campaigns? So you could see then cumulatively how they were working together so that you could then understand what other um, inflection points can you create what else is needed to keep that conversation going and to make sure we don't forget about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you would be proud of us. We've actually incorporated um, some of those social media analytics into our projects. Now there's a, there's a group at UGA called C-suite in the journalism school, and they've been helping us track some of those conversations. Cause I think that data is, you know, it's really valuable and, and insightful.
2: Yeah, I think so because what you do with that data, right, which you're probably looking at too, is you're understanding what people are paying attention to in a really busy space. It's hard to punch through. It's hard to get a stop sucking campaign these days. Or even then, right? Who we had no idea that we were going to create a globally resonant campaign. But you, if you're not looking at the data, you won't really know how hard to push and when to push and when to lay off and you know what you need to do. So I'm glad you're looking at that. I can't wait to see what you do with the data. Yeah.
0: We're working on a paper associated with it, what we're finding in the litter compared with what people are talking about. So be on the lookout for that.
2: Ooh, exciting.
1: (laughs) So going along with this thought line of how do you get people to care? I was recently listening to a podcast and they were talking about how the popular don't mess with Texas slogan actually began as an anti-littering campaign in the eighties and you might've known that, but that was news to me. I thought it was just so funny because most people know the slogan due to its prevalence in pop culture. I had no clue that it was related to a Department of Transportation anti-littering campaign. So what factors do you think influence the success of an environmentally focused marketing campaign and which of your campaigns do you feel like were the most successful? I, so I
2: love the Don't Mess With Texas campaign. I love it, and I'm so glad that you brought that up. It was one of the early campaigns that we took a look at, actually, when I was at Vulcan. Um, so one thing that, that we did, that Jody Allen and I did, is we took a look at all the successful marketing campaigns that were out there. So what was so successful about Don't Mess With Texas is it was easy, right? It's easy to say there's this Texas pride, um, and I think it was a campaign for everybody. It didn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you were a Texan and it meant something to be a Texan. And and that I think sometimes we just, we we, as nonprofit campaigners, we forget the value of simplicity. So I'm a psychologist by training. Um, If I'm gonna talk to my husband or anyone else about communication, I'm not gonna use big psychological terms, right? I'm not, I'm gonna boil it down to its basics so he can understand so that we have a common language and that's what Don't Mess With Texas did. I think another incredibly successful campaign that we don't really talk much about um, is the Ben and Jerry's campaign from the early days. It's hard to find an image of it. We found it one time, but it was um standing outside of a grocery store holding a, a piece of cardboard and he wrote on it, What's the doughboy scared of? Ah. What's the doughboy scared of? And it was poking at Pillsbury, right because they were preventing Ben and Jerry's ice cream from getting in the freezer shelves. And mm-hmm. so here's this campaign back when I think it was like the late 70s or early 80s, that was incredibly successful. And we and there was no social media, right? Same with Don't Mess with Texas. Mm-hmm. So I love those two campaigns because of that. Um, when we took a look at developing our campaigns, we were looking at a lot of these reference points to see what are the commonalities how as a nonprofit can we really speak to some of these larger issues in a way that a brand would or in a way that has worked in the past which is how we came up with the stop sucking campaign so simple straightforward who hasn't wanted to tell somebody to stop sucking at some point in their life you know you can like you can really go with it if you want to very few did Um, and we, we thought maybe, you know, it'd get political. It never got political, but it did resonate and it was just really easy to understand. And importantly, what it did is it worked to change norms
1: Mm.
2: in small groups of individuals while they're having an iced tea over lunch, right? Became culturally unacceptable to have a straw in your glass of water or in your cocktail. And, and I think that's, it's a good lesson learned for all of us in the nonprofit sector of you know, I love how scientists speak. I'm one, you two are. But we can't talk like scientists and we can't talk like policymakers if we really want to get people to pay attention and to really get excited about the change that they can help make.
0: Those have all been really, really powerful. And and so I want to add a, a sort of a third aspect to this. You mentioned Adrian. And you've worked with um, other celebrities as well. I remember when you introduced me to Adrian, I was very excited. I I will admit I was starstruck having watched him on HBO. But, you know, but then it kind of became normal to have him around. And I even gave a research talk, you know, that that he was listening to uh, in Atlanta when we we had a next wave meeting there. So. I I really have appreciated how genuinely, genuinely interested, and I think authentically engaged the people have been that you've worked with. um, And they seem to care about the issue. I think Jason Momoa comes to mind. I know he still shares, you know, this topic on social media. I mean, I don't know that you're working together anymore. And so I'm curious, how do you see the power of celebrities and or other influencers in this space?
2: I I think it's, it, and they're both lovely humans. <laughs> I love Adrian and Jason. I mean, they're just like down to earth, yeah. incredible, incredibly talented people, but just really genuine about the change that they are really seeking in the world. So it's been really an honor to work with them. Um, and I'm a Gen Xer too, so I don't really look at celebrities as like, oh, it's a celebrity. Um, but Jason's gigantic. So that, that one was hard for me to not look at him as a celebrity because I, I accident. I like he said something to me and I punched him in the shoulder and I'm like it hurt. <laughs> 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 he's really, he's really big. Yeah. Really um, so they're really powerful voices and and it's it's see so how do I put this the right way? Um, it's really important to be very clear with what you. What you want to do together. Because I get so many ass all the time, right? Mm. So to have someone like a Momoa show up for one of our campaigns, um, it really had to be authentic for him. He really needed to know that we were carrying the message that he wanted us to carry mm. and to go as far as he wanted us to go. Same with Adrian. You, you have to be careful when you use them. Oftentimes you'll get to use them one time, maybe two, um, because of the number of asks that they have and so you have to think really carefully about the timing the situation the ask and the outcome that you're seeking and and i think that's especially true for the a-listers like momoa i also think that sometimes we forget the power of working with uh, influencers who maybe haven't made it up to the a-listers so if you look at our our stop sucking video that we produced one of the, the i think of the second video that we produced um you know we had some folks in there that you could probably look at and be like oh didn't i see them on tv one time right mm-hmm. or um i mean that was before kendrick sampson Samson got so big he was on there and mm-hmm. what we wanted is we wanted representation we wanted people to look at these campaign videos and to see themselves in the people that we selected. So if we had had Kim Kardashian and Jason Momoa and Tom Brady and Giselle and, you know, all these kind of untouchable people, I don't think it would have been that successful. But having people that you look at and you're like, oh yeah, I could, I think they could be my next door neighbor. Um, they just happen. the camera loves them, like that's their secret sauce. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that really helped our campaign go far and wide one of the most important ones actually was um, Huda who is Muslim a Muslim singer she was the most effective um, influencer that we've ever used wow. um, most effective hands down because her audience hangs on every word we had over 100,000 people view our video just because of her wow. and and that's it but those are people who are who are taking the message and they're working with it and they're they're taking the next steps. So I I think, you know, don't just think about A-listers, but think about the whole range of influencers that are out there and how you can really show up for them.
0: Mm -hmm. And it really does allow more, well, I guess it it makes it reach more people because people want to see these people. I mean, they pay to go to movies and watch TV shows with these people. So if they're in some, you know, messaging campaign, they want to see it. That's kind of that magic sauce, as you said.
2: That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I, and I think too, you know, influencers like Danny Francesi for us got us into a whole different genre of people, people who go to comedy shows, um, the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, and, and that was really effective. We then ended up using him a couple of more times, one for a Bacardi campaign. And it was, I don't know if you saw that one where we were trying to get Unicode to stop using straws in their emojis. Um, and so he did this campaign where he was Tommy, the turtle. He was reading a letter on behalf of Tommy, the turtle from the bottom of the ocean. Nice. <laughs> and it was yeah, really successful.
1: Yeah. I think one of the interesting and important things about social media is that because there are influencers, they can all help unlock so many different niche groups of people in a way that we weren't able to before. So I think, I think that's really interesting. Um, so Dune, the next wave plastics group was a spin-off of lonely whale can you tell us a little bit about that group's mission and what they've accomplished oh it's one of my favorite things about my
2: time at lonely whale next wave plastics so this actually started because of adrian um back in the day he was dell technology's first social good advocate and You know, Dell wanted him to go out and talk about their social good goals. And um, I think I think at the time it was focused on 2025 getting to 2030. And Adrian said, yeah, I'd I'd love to do that for you. And um, I also need you to focus on this ocean plastics issue. And they were like, what ocean plastics issue (laughs) like the rest (laughs) of us? I remember the first time Paul Allen said, yeah, okay, elephant's great. What are we going to do about plastics in the ocean? I was like, whoa, what are we talking about here? And so Dell took them up on the challenge. And they looked at all sorts of ways to tackle ocean plastics. And what they decided to do is to iterate on their packaging by taking uh, plastic material that had found its way into the ocean or was on the beach, about ready to get in there, or on the banks, not yet there, and to see if they could turn it into material that would go into their packaging. Uh lo and behold, they figured out they could do it. Along the way in Madison, they also realized the scale of the problem is is just gigantic. Right. I think that they had a really good inkling that researchers all over the world um, were gonna start to find that there's actually more plastic in more places than these few sites that we had searched. And the problem is probably gonna get a lot bigger before it gets better. And so they asked us to see if we could help build a consortium. We called it, Ph said it best, the consortium of the willing of like-minded companies that could come together to really stand up these ocean bound plastic supply chains and to learn from one another, sit across the table from each other to tackle big issues, things like social responsibility um, and environmental impact and return on investment for supply chains, um, material design, and see how we could tackle the issue together. At the same time, HP was also learning under the leadership of Ellen Schakowsky, who's now the CSO at MasterCard. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we started working with Dell, reached out to a lot of their suppliers, reached out to companies that we really admired. And in 2017, we launched Nextway Plastics. We had uh, 10 founding companies from um, really different industries. We had Trek Bicycles, who was one of my favorites. You know, they they just went for it. Before we even announced Next Wave, they had created the Bontrager back cage out of recycled fishing nets that our friends at Borreo had collected um, off the coast of Chile in South America. Uh, Herman Miller. Um, uh, oh, Interface Carpet, based in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, yeah and so on. And then the next year we announced Ikea and HP to come on board. Um, And that's really when it took off too, right? I think to have two more global giants, especially Dell's biggest competitor in the market, HP, Mm -hmm. coming to the table to learn together was really impactful. So um, one of the goals with Next Wave was to create a network of ocean bound plastic suppliers, to create continuity in the supply chain so that if there was a disaster in one area, companies could count on getting materials from other areas around the world. That was very successful. Um, We saw a number of use cases that really demonstrated that this material being wasted has value. And I think that's an important part of the conversation. If we wanna recycle more plastics, we have to demonstrate that it has value, that companies will be able to use it and there's a market for it. Um, And then right when I left, we had um, rolled out the social sustainability um, framework, and it was being tested by our friends at um, uh, uh, Circulate Capital in some of their sites in Indonesia and elsewhere. So that also is a really important part of it, which I know has been so important at University of Georgia. Jenna, the work that you and your team have been doing is to really care for the livelihoods Of those who are on the front lines Mm -hmm. and they're collecting this material every day so i think it you know the impact of nextway plastics is going to continue to increase and we're going to see the influence of their work reverberate across multiple industries and see more uh, suppliers Mm -hmm. start to provide material into this particular supply chain so it's been really exciting to see
0: And I think that another thing that it kind of addresses is, I mean, these are really volatile markets. So to have that many people looking for a material can provide a consistent price and, you know, and just consistency for the, you know, the people that are working on those front lines, which they don't often have. And so I think that's another component of this. So
2: that's exactly right. During COVID too, I think one of the biggest success stories was HP um, really, I think tripling what they would pay for this material and locking into contracts. So, yeah, Jenna, that cannot be understated. It is so important to have that certainty within those communities
0: mm-hmm. so we we hosted a next wave meeting. while, well, it was in Atlanta, and then we we got you over the the whole crew over to Athens for a little bit. I remember that I took all the intent attendees, so all those different companies to our compost facility here in Athens, the materials recovery facility, or MRF, we call it for short, and the landfill. I think it was quite eye-opening for, you know, many of them in in different ways. And so how important do you think is it for people who work on this issue, not necessarily just in corporations, but everybody who works on this issue in any capacity, to see what's happening on the ground?
2: Oh, I think it's critical for these companies to see what's on the ground. It's I I think for all individuals to see what's happening and to really understand where these materials go, you know, what it means for an item to actually be recycled, it goes beyond collection, but most of us have no idea. You know, we put it in a bin and it goes somewhere and then Mm -hmm. somebody does something with it and we assume it's good, but it's not. It's not good. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important for people to see things firsthand. Once you see it, you cannot unsee it we took a group of nextway plastic companies to the supply chain that Dell was creating in indonesia Mm
1: -hmm.
2: incredibly Mm eye-opening we took them right into the heart of the community that was collecting the plastic and it's it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking to see what these children are growing up in essentially Mm -hmm. growing up in landfills and and again i think the resolve just gets stronger and they get more creative. The companies get more creative to see, well, how else can we solve for this systems issue? Right. And I think that's the other thing too, that they get when they go out and they see these sites is that they understand it's a systems problem. It's not a one-off issue here or there, but it really is a systems issue. And we need to come at the solution development with that mindset. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and not just a downstream issue that becomes evident. Yes, you're seeing the impacts there, but realizing that, like you said, systems mean upstream just as much as where you're actually standing.
2: That's right. And material design as well, right? It means material design. You have to really challenge yourself to rethink our material inputs. You know, I I, I think going back to the PFAS issue, you know, it, it's easy to understand why they were created in the first place. Right? it's it, it, I don't think anybody, well, I shouldn't say this, but um, I think when people are designing things, they're solving for a specific issue, right? And that issue matters. And it's only in hindsight can we see the negative impact or the positive impact that's been had as a result of the material inputs, the design process, and then what happens afterwards. So I think we're all getting a lot smarter as humans, as a species, about the role that we play so i'm i'm
1: excited about those learnings
0: well good that's a good segue to the next question madison
1: so after leaving lonely whale last year you're now ceo of movements that matter can you tell us a bit more about that and what you're currently working on
2: yeah i you know i was founding ceo of lonely well i was there for six and a half years and personally it was a good time for me to shift into something else, into the next thing. It, I'm a builder at heart, and where the organization needed to go was somebody who could really sustain the organization. So, and as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm curious by nature. So, I took some time, um, actually moved my family to Oahu in the fall, and then back. So we're back in the states. We're back on the mainland. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to work with one of my personal heroes, Hara, who was at Seattle Public Utilities when we did our straw campaign and really helped to uh, make that campaign what it became. She had since moved to the U.S. Water Alliance. And so I did a three month stint with her as head of brand and communications. And I was, um, I just overwhelmed with the amount that I learned about the instability of our water supply in the United States. So many issues and so much opportunity to really affect change. And I knew part of this when we did our, our Hydrate Like a Mother campaign with Momoa. Yep. Um, at how fragile our water system was, but really didn't have the authority at Lonely Wild to be able to do that. You know, as an entity, we were known for plastics, right? and it was hard to shift into something else. So um, that's, that's part of what I took away this fall with my work at the U.S. Water Alliance, is that there's a lot of opportunity, we're really not talking about it, and this is one of those areas where we need to create a movement around creating access to affordable, and clean water right. for everybody. So, um, so that was really eye opening for me. And I, I decided instead of going full time, I, I wanted to be able to dedicate more time to my family, and um, which has been great. I mean, our, our son is nine next week, and he is, you know, as a little human, he is growing and developing so fast, as Jenna, as you know, mm-hmm. they grew up so fast. So. Instead of going back somewhere full-time, I decided to go back into my consulting days. Started Movements That Matter really as a reminder to myself that everything that I do every day needs to mean something. Um, but as an example, today I'm sitting in my client's office and this is an incredible foundation that supports Black-served and Black-led organizations as well as LGBTQIA plus organizations. Um, and I'm I'm helping them just create some more efficiencies in the work they do. So I'm really happy to be here and honored. Um, but at my heart, my focus is really on water and my focus is really on a decoupled economy, which is part of my work at uh, Ball Corporation as well, where I serve as an independent director on their board of directors. And so really helping to inform the changes that they're going through as a company and as one of the leading companies around my decoupled economy is really exciting. So stay tuned for more on movements that matter, um, but I'm, I'm excited about all the opportunities that I'm starting to see out there where I think I can really help affect change.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And it's also great that you're at a point in your career where you can take some time for your family. I know, Jenna, you had something related to that to ask.
0: Yeah, I'm going to ask something, which will be fun. But um, I wanted to comment on, you know, water is really a right. And it's actually the plastics and water are connected because, you know, access to clean water is not had by everyone. I mean, it's absolutely critical. It's it's life and death. Okay, so I'm excited for for what you're doing next. And so I want to go back to a little bit of time over COVID. I think you and I chatted once about this. I believe that you were in a camper for a while with your family, living in a camper. I spent three weeks in a camper with my family for our Mississippi River Project, the Mississippi River Plastic Pollution Initiative. I personally loved every minute. I'm not sure all of them felt the same. Um, But I have to say, you know, we have talked about this. I think sometimes we have to get really creative about this work-life balance, family balance, whatever it is. It's not really a balance. It's a pendulum. But I'm curious if you have some thoughts on that or advice you'd like to give others, you know, when thinking about that. Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was in the camper for over four months. Yep. So advice number one is do not take very much stuff with you cause you really don't need very much. Stuff. And there's no room no. to put it. Like just, you know, advice number two is do it because family matters more than anything else. And I, and I think, you know, in my fifties now, I think I'm finally, and I'm really grateful for it. I think I finally have that perspective that, yeah, I could work 12 hours a day running a nonprofit, but I, I, I don't want to, you know, what I want to do is I want to be present. I want to be present for my kids and for my child, I have two children, I have a 31 year old daughter as well, and present for my husband and present for myself. And so I think that's what that camper experience taught me as well, is that you have to be present because you're in like this tiny little presence, like a tiny little tube. You can't actually escape and you have to learn how to get along and you have to learn to laugh at yourself. And you have to learn that it's, it's, and and the client once said, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, you know? So Mm -hmm. I remember, um, and, and you can't stress about things. I took a, a live TV program interview at a KOA campground in Petaluma, California, at five o'clock in the morning, Pacific Coast, yep. for a New York 8 a.m. show. So I'm sitting outside and it's freezing, and I've got my cup of coffee in my hands, and I've got my ring light, and I've got the truck in front of me, and I've got the tree behind me, and I'm just, I got blankets all over me, except for the top, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> like this how it works this is where we're gonna go this is what it's gonna be today Or the time i had to kick my family out of the trailer because tom ford was gonna call me yep that i was like everyone out dog (laughs) everybody gone 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 tom ford's calling me so i just i just think you have to learn to to take things with a grain of salt and there's nothing like being in a very small space traveling around the country in our case trying not to get COVID. yeah (laughs) and trying to avoid wildfires you know and enjoy, j- just enjoy it. I was so happy when I figured out there's no cell reception in Death Valley. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's so great. Because then you're just present the whole time. Right. I, yeah. yeah, I want to do it again. Not I being
0: reachable. There's something to be said about that. Yeah, I think I did a UN talk or something. Uh, on. <laughs> I I know those picnic tables outside the campsites very well. Um, And you just have to, you know, you just go with it. And in our camper... Uh, we take it every year to Minnesota as well for a little bit of a time. Although we're not we're not able to do that this year. But I've done PhD thesis defenses, run those, and and no one in the camper is allowed, or no one's allowed in the camper when we're doing stuff like that. So I get that as well. Um, I'm so glad you had a had a good experience, and it's it's definitely one for the books. For our final thought, uh, part of the reason we bring guests on to this podcast is to hear different perspectives. Uh, We know that systems will only change in a just and equitable way if we have representation or representative perspectives and representation um, and voices at the table. So we ask a similar question to each one of our guests. So in terms of what we've been talking about today, primarily plastics, but all kinds of issues, what voice do you think is either missing, or would you like to see more amplified in this space? And then a second part to that question is how do we help make that happen?
2: If you had asked me that question a year ago, I would have said black and brown communities. That -hmm. would have been my answer. And I love the movement that we're seeing there. I love that we're seeing more and more voices of those who are dealing with these issues every day Um, we're not listening enough to enough of those voices. So I'll still say that, but I'm going to add one. And Mm -hmm. this is from a person, my personal experience. So I am the mother of a neurodivergent child Mm. and his neurodivergence is amazing. It is, it's complicated. Um, it's creative, it's innovative, it's fast moving. It's, um, impatient and it's so important for us to listen to you so here's some things to kind of think about with neurodivergence right now it's estimated that three out of ten people across the country have some form of neurodivergence adhd autism dyslexia um there's a whole range of them only 10 percent of people with neurodivergence are hired out of high school or can have jobs Hmm. not can have jobs but get jobs right So we have this whole group of people with this untapped creativity and innovation that we need to find a way to pull into these conversations in a way that's really meaningful to them. And I think when we do that, I think we're gonna find a lot of the solutions to some of the issues that we are challenged with today. They think differently, right? My son is ADHD combined, dyslexia, um, anxiety disorder, um, autistic, and mm-hmm. also has a genius level IQ.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the way that he solves problems, right? I just look at him and I think it, he is going to be the one who is gonna solve the big issues for us. So that's that's the group that I really feel like we are not doing enough to pull into the conversation. And I think there's so much more that we can do.
0: Mm-hmm. So important to have all of these different perspectives, all of these different ways of thinking. and And we know science shows that our you know, working towards solutions is, it's, it's hindered if we don't have all those voices, it's not as good. We're not going to come up with those solutions without them.
2: I don't want those kids quieted in the classroom. I want those kids thinking. I want those kids talking. I want them moving around. Um, but there's, there's just not enough opportunity right now to allow them to really teach us what they are ready to teach us. So, um, yeah it's a it has really opened my eyes this last year jenna with this personal experience mm-hmm. and and again like i said before once you see it you can't see it just the untapped potential that's there mm-hmm. and our missed opportunities so i'm looking for opportunities to do that more in fact just joining um, a board of directors this amazing organization in denver colorado called teaching autism community the trades mm-hmm. um, so look it up it's a really an exciting opportunity um, to help more kids be able to get into the workforce and to put their talents to use.
0: Great, we can put that, we can put a link to that in the episode notes
2: for sure. Oh, amazing, that'd be great.
1: Thank you, Dune, so much for sharing your insights from the intersection of marketing and environmentalism. This has been such an interesting and enriching conversation and we cannot wait to see what else you do moving forward. Thank you, Madison and Jenna. Same. I can't wait to see what you guys do. I know.
0: Forward. Oh, I want to thank you so much uh, for putting all your magical skills to this topic, Dune, um, and for helping influence change. And to all our listeners, thank you for taking time out of your day to join us on the Thread.